Well, I told you last week, and uh, I probably got ahead of myself a little bit, but kind of mentioned that maybe we'd be in the covenant of grace today. Uh, we're not. Uh, <laughs> we're just going to slow down for a little before I do that. I recognize that uh, if you had the uh, notes, uh, we never got to the exegetical foundations of the covenant of works, and so I wanted to just really, really... Um, really hang out in Scripture uh, today. So if you want to go back to Genesis chapter 2, as you can see here, my legible uh, points here, uh, Genesis two fifteen to 17, of course, you know that's the foundational uh, passage of Scripture. And uh, I just wanted to uh, just kind of reiterate um, that there are so many, uh, so many different proof texts that one could use uh, for the covenant of works, because you see... The way that it works, if you really think about it, in terms of the organic nature of the covenants, is that the covenant of redemption, okay, the covenant of redemption is sort of reflected in the covenant of works, okay? Because if you remember the covenant of redemption that we covered, right, Jesus told the Father, I've accomplished all of the work that you gave me to do. And of course, we know you know, passages like uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse five, or 15, he fulfilled all righteousness, right? Um, and he says not one jot or tittle, right? He didn't come to remove the law and the prophets, but to fulfill the law, right? All, all of those passages of, script, of Scripture uh, uh, sort of direct us towards this concept that when Jesus came, he came to fulfill a, a, a body of, of, of obedient work that he had to do, right? All righteousness. And of course, what, we, what I would say, and along with others, and it's interesting because I haven't really read this too much in a lot of people, but I did find some um, confirmation uh, among some some folks that exactly right. The covenant of works is reflecting right the works principle of the covenant of redemption, and then the work the works principle of the covenant of redemption. Because for us, we kind of think like, okay, so where does in the rest of the Bible where does it always allude back to the covenant of works? Um, you know. Um, um, because there's a sense in which we have to be honest that if you look at the rest of the Bible, where is Jesus not uh, partaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and eating only of the trees that God allows him to eat? Where's Jesus doing that? Anyone? Anyone? <laughs> Temptation? Well, he's not, right? Because Jesus is not in the garden. Right, Jesus is, doesn't have the, knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in front of him. So, matter of fact, theologians would ask, "Well, what covenant of works is Jesus actually fulfilling?" Well, he's fulfilling the original one, but he is not obeying uh, that uh, explicit command that God gave Adam. He's under a different uh, covenant administration. So, what we would say is that the covenant of works itself is actually reflected once again in what in the old covenant. Right and and so the works principle of the covenant of works is reestablished again. Some would call it the republication view. Right, that 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 basic works principle is found once again in the old covenant, where God tells Israel, "Do this and live, do this and die." Right, and is Jesus fulfilling this covenant? Absolutely, one hundred percent. So I just want to make this so that you understand. So that when you're perusing through the Bible, you're mainly going to find passages where Jesus is obeying the old covenant law. 
and fulfilling it and all of that, right? So I just wanted to show you just kind of how the covenantal, uh, you know, relationship goes. Yes, sir. Do you have a question? Uh-huh. Basically, covenant of works uh, is about obedience, and then the co- old covenant is also reflecting that because it's fulfilled by obedience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, correct. And even more than that, right? The covenant of works is actually fulfilled by right a covenant head, right? Uh, what old theologians would call Jesus a public man, right? That uh, a public man would meet would mean that he stood representing all of humanity, right? That he was a public figure, that he was a representative, in other words, a legal representative, just kind of an old uh, term to describe that. But what's going on in the covenant of works is that a covenant head is is put under that covenant, and what he does trickles down to his posterity. Same thing what Jesus did, you know? Uh, he was a covenant head. So anyway, yeah. Before Jesus, who was the covenant head? Or the covenant? Well, we would say... Uh, we would say that God obviously made a covenant with different servants. You know, like uh, Abraham was the servant of the Abrahamic covenant. Israel was the servant of the of the old covenant. You know, David was the servant of the old. I think so. Yeah, reflecting a corporate Adam. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Because remember, that goes back to the sonship language in the Bible. That Israel is like like Adam. Israel is called the son of God. Exodus chapter 3, verse 20, 21, I think it is, and 22. So, yeah, so anyway, I just want to show you that, you know, when you're looking through your Bible, how is it that we account for Jesus fulfilling the covenant of works and interacting with the covenant of works? You're mainly going to see that in terms of his obedience to the old covenant because the old covenant was reflecting the covenant of works. Okay, it's that simple. Uh, any questions on that? No? Clear as mud? Okay. So, then today, I just want to look at some of these texts, okay? So, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Remember what we're saying. Remember what we're saying about the original situation there in Genesis, that there is so much in the prologue of Genesis that leads us towards uh, not just the covenant of works, but a covenant, um, a covenant worldview altogether. Uh, every aspect of the, pro- of the prologue. Uh, is covenantal in its in its um, in its uh, 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 the way that it's written and uh, in its makeup. Okay, um, we have to remember this also. Hey, Rudy. Good to see you, Rudy. Rudy's a good friend of mine. Yeah, he pops in here from time to time, and it's always kind of like I'm preaching as a total distraction. But I'm preaching like here's Rudy. What? I haven't seen him in four years. What's Rudy doing here? <laughs> anyway, love you, brother. Good to see you, man. Um, but uh, so what I'm saying is this, is that we have to remember what Genesis chapter 2, what this section is. What is this section, right, of Scripture? Genesis is the prologue, uh, not, just, not just to the book of Genesis, but to what, to what greater section of Scripture? No. Genesis is this this opening three chapters is 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 the prologue or it's the opening statement, if you would, of what section in the Bible? The Pentateuch. That's right. The law. Right? Which is I know you guys know that. But it is introducing the law. And what is the law? Five books of Moses, right? Genesis through Deuteronomy. 
And so when God gave Genesis, he was giving Genesis in a context. Who was he giving it to? He was giving it to the children of Israel at Sinai when they were just delivered out of Egypt. And he just established a covenant with them. And so these, you got to remember, it wasn't that, you know, we usually go back to try to understand, you know, Genesis and the prologue in its most primitive form and try not to look ahead of the story and try to pretend like we don't know what's to come, right? But that is not the way that Genesis came to the people of God. Genesis came to the people of God already with a full-orbed covenantal worldview, okay? And so, for example, look at Genesis uh, 2.15 where God tells them, the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden. Two words here, to cultivate and to keep it. Those two words are used in the book of Numbers and in other places repeatedly of the priests in the temple guarding and keeping the tabernacle or the temple. Those exact Hebrew words. So imagine you are a Jewish priest, right, in early in the early theocracy, and the same words that are that are that are your obligation in the temple, you find is Adam's obligation in the garden. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? So this is not some kind of anachronistic application, meaning it's not like out of time. This is, this is uh, people with absolute hindsight. 2020 is on their side. They can look back and say, oh, look, of course, Adam, just like us, you know, we, he was a priest unto his God. Look, you see that? Same thing with the word in, uh, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, where it says, you know, that he was to take dominion over all of creation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right? What do you find? You find that that word dominion is found, found repeatedly with all the kings of Israel. So Solomon was to have dominion. <laughs> so then the kingdom comes and they say, oh, look, Adam, just like us, same Hebrew word, was to take dominion of God's creation, just like us. So Adam was in a kingdom. <laughs> Adam was a king. So now Adam is a king. Now Adam is a priest. And I would say Adam was a prophet, right? Because he had God's word. And he was supposed to minister the word of God, and he was supposed to preach the word of God and, and use the word of God uh, uh, to exercise that, that, that dominion. So uh, you see this all throughout the prologue, just in terms of the covenant worldview that is, that is made there. Um, okay, so we're thinking exegetically. The first thing that people point out is the word berit, covenant, or the word hak, which is another covenantal term that means decree. Those words are not found in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. So then people say, what gives? You're talking about a covenant, but the word covenant is not there. Well, the word covenant is also not found found in Genesis chapter 1. But let me read you this verse, and you tell me what you think. Well, I don't know. That's kind of a risky proposition, but... It says in Jeremiah 33, verse 20, thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that day and night will not be at their appointed time, then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant, so that he will not have a son to reign on his throne with the Levitical priests, my ministers. I, such a, you guys, such a fascinating word, such a fascinating passage because look at what all that's going on there, right? I mean, he's saying, he's saying, before I get to my point, notice the, the, the circumstances there, uh, Jeremiah thirty three twenty one. he's talking about the, the Davidic covenant and what was promised to him was that a son would reign on the throne uh, with the Levitical priest. So somehow in the future, it's like Jeremiah saw into the corridors of time and saw that God's covenantal 
uh, uh, promises would be fulfilled in a reigning king on the throne in association with the priesthood. So it, it kind of parallels what's said in Zechariah chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, where there the branch right, will sit on the throne with the Lord and he will be a high priest unto his God. You see, so it's like priesthood and kingdom come together in one person. How's that going to happen? Well, of course, we know the end of the story. But notice what he says. If you can break my covenant with the day, my covenant with the night. Question for you. When did he make a covenant with the day and a covenant with the night? In the very beginning. When he set them into their course. Question for you. Where's the word covenant in Genesis chapter 1? It's not there. But the children of Israel understood that, that, that even the course of creation was bound by covenant, right? That the covenant God had, in a sense, made a commitment to uphold all of that. And then I guess you could even add a kind of a wild card in there. Then you can, I guess what you could say is you can add the fact that under the Noahic covenant, because that covenant is a creational covenant, right? Then in a sense, that kind of gives expression to what uh, Jeremiah is talking about here, what happened in the original prologue. This is what I'm saying is that when you were a, when you were a Jew coming out of Egypt and you were given the, the old covenant through Moses and you went back and you read, you read the law, you read Genesis prologue and you're reading all of that, you're, you're, you're a Jewish person under covenant and you're reading that prologue for the first time, let's say, and examining the vocabulary and the themes that are found there, and you understand that the covenant God that is keeping you in covenant also kept the creation in covenant from the very beginning, and that Adam himself was, in a sense, in covenant. Um, the same phenomena is found in uh, uh, Psalm 148, Verse 3, praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all stars of light. Praise him, highest heavens and the waters that are above the heavens. What, what's the language that that reminds you of, right? The Genesis 1, right? The waters, he separated the waters from below, the waters above the heavens, right? Exact parallel to Genesis 1. And again, he uses covenant language to establish that. Let them praise the name of the Lord for... And, and by the way, just the, na- the name of the Lord is actually a covenantal badge, if you would, okay? He says, for he commanded that they were created. See, what, 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 this is beautiful because now we're using fully mature si- uh, Sinai covenant terms like command in Genesis in the prologue when God says, let there be, right? And now they're s- describing that with terminology that is fully mature in a covenant context and applying it to the creational context. Amazing. And then he says here, he also established them forever and ever. He made a decree. That's the Hebrew word, hak, which is also used in um, Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. I will tell of the decree of the Lord, right? That's where he says, you are my son, today I've begotten you. I've installed my king in Zion. Um, nobody questions that because that's the Davidic covenant. And he says, which will not pass away. He made a decree that will not pass away. In other words, uh, creation is bound by covenant. And that is why the creation will not pass away until God is fulfilling his purpose. Yeah. That kind of reminds me of Proverbs 8, 27-29. It says, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep. When he made mm. from the skies above, when he 
established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, so hmm. that the waters might not transgress his command. Whew, look at that. The foundations of the earth. Amen, brother. Hallelujah. Amen. That's great. That's perfect. Um, let's move on. Any questions about that? We saw what's going on there in Genesis, that we have parties to the covenant God and Adam. We saw that there are sanctions in the covenant, dual sanction, right, which is, you know, basically uh, do this and live and do this and die, right? And the do this and live is implied by uh, the do this and die. We saw also that God gave a sign of the covenant, which... Um, I agree with agree with which is the uh, the tree of life, which was in a sense a sacramental token to the fact that God meant for Adam uh, to obtain eternal life. Um, we saw also that uh, by virtue of the fact that God had commanded the man to take dominion over the world, right, and that that dominion, as I stated earlier, really is sort of an association with the kingdom and the kings, so that what is being promised to Adam in the covenant of works is the inheritance of a kingdom. Do this and live, right? It's not just live forever in Eden. Uh, I would say do this and live means that he would inherit a new quality of life. He would ascend to a higher plane of life than he had in his state of innocence. Uh, In his state of innocence, he could not... He could not positively impute righteousness to anyone. Let me say that again. In his state of innocence, Adam could not impute righteousness to anyone. That would only happen once he passed probation. He passed the test. I believe God would confirm him in righteousness, give him eternal life, and from him he would become what Jesus became. First uh, Corinthians chapter 15, I think it's verse 46, a life-giving spirit. But until Adam passed probation, he would not impart life, eternal life to his posterity. Of course, that's what Jesus does for us, right? As the what? The second Adam, the last Adam, right? Yes, sir. Jeremiah uh, 33. (sighs) Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 20 to 21. And there's so many texts like that I have to like hold back from just going off because then it's like I'll find myself back in biblical theology and we covered protology for months and just like, okay, you guys have had enough of that. Maybe, I don't know, maybe not. What's that? <laughs> oh, good, amen, sister. I'll be here for you. It's just you and I, hey. Think of it, God's power over creation, the presence of the Spirit over the sea, God's power to divide the waters, God's power over heaven and earth, God's power over the creatures of the deep, the sea monsters. Why does he only name that? How many, how many types of forms of life are there in the ocean? Millions. Yet he zeroes in on sea monsters, which I think is interesting, right? The Hebrew word is tatanim. And the tatanim are mentioned later in the Bible um, and ultimately associated with Leviathan, right? And then Leviathan himself has satanic overtones, where the serpent, where Satan is, in a sense, associated with Leviathan and how God can crush the head of Leviathan. So from the prologue, from the Genesis prologue, we're already, already being introduced to the concept that God has sovereignty over Satan, Yeah, and this would become very precious later on in the history of Israel, right? When, matter of fact, and I don't have the verse, and I'm sorry that I don't. Yes, I do. Where is it? 
Somebody read Ezekiel chapter 32, verse 2. Because I think there, Ezekiel chapter 32, verse 2, because I think there God compares, you got it? Go ahead. Son of man, raise a lamentation over Pharaoh, king of Egypt, Mm. and say to him, you consider yourself a lion of the nations, but you are like a dragon in the seas. You burst forth in your rivers, trouble the waters with your feet, and foul their rivers. That's right. He's like a monster in the sea, right? Which, think about it, the Jewish people coming out of captivity, right? And they, and, 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 and where they were enslaved to Pharaoh, right? And then, and then the prophets are saying Pharaoh is like a sea monster, right? He's like a monster of the sea, right? And then, and then you go back and read the prologue again where you see that God creates the sea monsters. So he has dominion over them. It's just amazing. Amazing. Yes, sir. Uh, a similar passage to that was Isaiah 27. Sure. Read it. It says, uh, in, in reference to the, li- the, the deliverance of Israel, in that day the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, with his fierce and great and mighty sword. Even Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. And that, and that Hebrew word, I believe, is tatanim, the same word that's found in Genesis chapter 1. Isaiah 27. Yes, sir. Um, yeah. We don't have to read it all, but... Yeah. Yeah, I knew it was in Job, yeah. So, just the whole chapter? Yeah, we won't read it all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what are we usually doing with verses like that? This is why, okay, brace yourself, but I've, I've, I've been quoted as saying that apologetics has ruined biblical theology. We open the book of Genesis chapter 1 through 3, and what do we do? We try to argue against evolution. Okay, fair enough. We go to Job, what is it, 47, 41? We go to Job 41, and we try to argue for dinosaurs. But what's the Bible saying? What is the inherent meaning of the text, and how did Job and how did the people of Israel take those passages? They didn't didn't take that to establish the existence of dinosaurs. They took that to establish the sovereignty of God over the demonic realm. Totally different worldview, guys, than what we have today. So I'm not saying it doesn't have the capacity to teach, the, teach us those things. I'm saying that what, when you're looking at what is the original biblical theological context, it's not trying to refute Darwin. It's trying to teach us, you know, God's sovereignty over all things. Yes, sir. Okay. I think you kind of answered this. Basically, asking, do you think about it and that God was still describing the real creation? Mm. Yes, I do. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah, it's so crazy about this. When you get into some of this, um, when you get into some of this theology and some of these, you just got to be careful. I mean, because there's a lot of liberalism out there, and I'm not liberal. And I don't, by God's grace, I don't have a liberal bone in my body. I don't believe in an old earth. You know what I mean? I try to be careful what what I what I view as strictly metaphorical. You know, liberals like to think everything is metaphorical. That's how Pete Enns ended up thinking Adam was metaphorical. He wasn't a real person. He was just kind of a metaphor in the mind of Moses. And doesn't it, the, the fact that he existed or didn't exist is not even important. Yes, it is. Because his analogy to Christ has to be, you know, first historical man, you know, second historical man, right? I mean, you can't have both ways. Okay, we're never going to get through this. Romans chapter 5. At least that's what I'm saying. It's Romans chapter 5, beginning in verses 12. So just proof text for an exegetical foundations for the covenant of works. Exe- uh, Romans chapter 5 is very crucial because there we really see the works principle uh, shining through, especially uh, in terms of federalism, 
the ancient word for federalism, the, the Latin word, uh, uh, I think it's uh, uh, fodes, which uh, just means, uh, it, it, I mean, you can translate it federal or covenantal. I mean, it's, you know, the, the old Puritans use that word for covenantal kind of almost interchangeably. You know what I mean? So what, what, the reason why is because, of course, we recognize that here we are being given two covenant heads. We're giving two representatives. We're given two people who were both under God's law, two public men, Adam and Christ. And based on their, either their obedience or disobedience, that had ramifications for all of humanity, right? Or at least their own respective humanities. Uh, why, why can't it be all of humanity? Why do we have to be careful there? Right? So who did Adam represent? Everybody. Who did Christ represent? Yeah, I mean, that's just kind of getting right to it, right? So Adam, or Adam represented all of his posterity. I like it put that way, his humanity. And then Adam represents all of his posterity or all of his, or Christ, all of his humanity. Thank you, Trish. And all of his humanity, all of his people, which obviously is the elect, right? And uh, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It just kind of changes everything when you think about this. Uh, let's see here. It's a long passage. It's one of the most difficult exegetical passages in all the Bible. Romans chapter five, beginning verse twelve, because you, um, you have some you have some difficult language here, which it's not really the point of our discussion. But just to make you alert to this, therefore, just as the one man sin entered in the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, that's an interesting way of saying it because it almost implies that it's when you sin that sin spreads to you or something like that, right? Uh, notice carefully what it's saying here. Just as one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, right? His sin. And so death spread to all men, that makes sense, because all sinned. So it's like, so does death not spread to all men if we don't sin? See what I'm saying? Because it says, because all sinned. So the question then becomes, uh, how do they sin? What does he mean by all sinned, right? I know some would say that all sinned here refers that all, all of us sinned in Adam, Right? That all of us, in a sense, were viewed as covenant breakers, transgressors of God's law in Adam. Right? So, again, it's kind of a disputed uh, text. For until the law, sin was not in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. There, Nevertheless, so that's what the law did. Right? The law came in, as Paul says elsewhere, to make sin exceedingly sinful, to show us the exceeding nature of sin. Right? And he says... Uh, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses. So, what, so, so look at that. I mean, even though Adam did not have the law, nevertheless, death still reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of Adam's uh, offense, uh, at, uh, of the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Wow, what a mouthful, right? So even though Israel was not in the same covenant economy as Adam, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to sin. In other words, it's just very simple, right? We all inherit corruption. No matter what covenant administration you are in, whether you're in a pre-Mosaic 
uh, a covenant or dispensation or whether you are under the covenant dispensation. Uh, you are still bound to the same principle of sin and death, sin and death, right, which is only broken, of course, in Christ, who is, uh, Adam is a type of, of him. It says, but the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression the, uh, of the one many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ. Now there begins, there begins the direct correlation between Adam in the garden and Christ um, in his garden, right? In Gethsemane. Wouldn't it be amazing if that was the same place? Anyway, I don't know. Don't start any crazy theories, okay? I just thought about that right now. <laughs> it's just like, you know, but, but yeah, I mean, look at that. I mean, both men um, are called the one man, Right? The one man, they're identified as figureheads from that place, from that outset. Now, listen to the maturity, again, listen to the maturity of the language of Paul in association with Adam. Ready? He says, The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, um, resulting in justification. So what's interesting here to me is that Paul is using words like sinned, judgment, condemnation in association with Adam. These are words that are used soteriologically of modern believers. And Paul is using that language in association with Adam, which is, to me, amazing. The same gospel terminology that Paul uses in Romans applies to Adam. I love that. Maybe I'm the only one that loves it. Any questions so far? For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Now, Then he begins to summarize verses 18 and following. He says, So then, through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through the one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. See, this is why, folks, this is why, after going through the theology of Romans, you must now interpret what happened in the garden in in this way, right? That had Adam fulfilled that one act of righteousness, what would he have done? He says he would have gave life to all men. You see? But he didn't. So he could not have passed on eternal life to everyone. Uh, for as through the one man's disobedience, uh, that's, that's really, uh, this is why we're saying this is a support passage to the covenant of works because we are thinking here in terms of works or the lack thereof. He says, you know, for through the one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Even so... Through the one man, uh, through the obedience of the one of the one, the many will be made righteous. Wow, people want me to preach this book. I will never get out of this. <laughs> Ten years later, be like, huh? Do it. do it. Oh man, do it. Do it. Do it. <laughs> man, the mutiny, exegetical mutiny, expository mutiny over here. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. The law doesn't create the sin. 
but the law shows that it's exceedingly sinful. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Praise God, we're going to get there, right? So as we go from one from the covenant of works to the covenant of grace, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life. See how righteousness leads to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So much. So much. There's so much to get to there. Um, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm, again, I, I said I was going to do a lot of Bible verses, and so we'll try. If, if you're sitting there going, what? Whew. Wow, that's a lot of stuff. Okay, well then start with this verse instead. Maybe I should have did that. But I feel it would be easier now, right? It's like MacArthur says, do the hard things first. So we did the Romans 5 first. That's a hard one. This is a simple summary. In a sense, the same exact argument truncated and put in a very succinct package for us to understand, right? Uh, so if you don't understand everything, how sin, and all everybody sinned in Adam, is sin the one transgression of the one man, the righteousness leading to life. Okay, if we don't get all of that, how about this? But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Now, anybody have any questions about that text right off the bat? Anyone? Anyone? Maybe if you interact with this text, um, you'll notice that it says, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Yes, sir. Great question. That's exactly what I'm saying. Because here, you know, without him like elaborating, right? He it's a it's a more it's a more one to one correspondence. It's a symmetry is almost exact, right? Adam affected all. We know what that means. All of humanity, no exceptions whatsoever. And here it says he'll make all alive. So does he mean all of humanity, no exceptions? Of, of, of course, we would say no. He can't because we know what the Bible teaches elsewhere. But yeah. To me, too, it says like, there's, there's no difference. Like everybody is in Adam, but not everybody is in Christ. <laughs> so that's a big. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And as far as the Corinthian church, they would understand this, right? Uh, Paul taught them this theology. Uh, look at, uh, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for example. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, kind of a parallel passage, beginning of verse 13. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 13. For if we are beside ourselves, it is to God. If we are sound of, in sound mind, it is to you. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all. Therefore, all died. See, that's another uh, apparent universal tone. And he died for all. Now watch this now. That they who live, 
might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. See what I'm saying? So, so there it's, it's, it's obvious that, that, no, that the only ones, even going back to 1 Corinthians 15, the only ones who he made alive are those who no longer live for themselves, right? And for whom he died or on, that he died and he rose on their behalf. Um, so there he starts kind of specifying, you know, more and more. Uh, obviously, all of these passages have to be harmonized with other texts, you know. Any questions about any of that? Uh, this is Second Corinthians chapter five, verse twenty. Or excuse me, verse uh, mainly verse fifteen. Verse fifteen. Yeah, that's right. I mean, think about it. I mean, just yeah, 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 yeah. Mm, mm, mm. Any other questions? How about? Um, how about we turn to Hosea chapter 6 again? Hosea chapter 6, which I didn't put up here, so I'll just write it up here again. But Hosea chapter 6, verse 7. Remember, this is a very important text, and this is a text that, um, to me, explicitly gives us license to talk about Adam with covenant language, right? It's a very simple text. It says, like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they have dealt treacherously against me. Um, there, are only a, there are only a couple possible ways to translate the Hebrew prepositional phrase here, ke-adam. Um, uh, and, and the most straightforward literal one is like. Uh, if you do, you know, if you're uh, doing Hebrew flashcards, you know, some of you guys are doing Greek flashcards. You're doing Hebrew f- flashcards. When you come to the word ke or ki, right, it will say like, as. Okay, so like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. That's remarkable. So the only real, truly alternative view, well, there are two. Okay, um, is that this is referring to some location, a city in the history of Israel during Joshua's uh, time. Let me read to you what that says and say that, no, 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 this is talking about how at the city of Adam, not, the man, not Adam, like Adam and Eve, but they would say at the city of Adam, they sinned there. Well, the only place we have a direct reference to the city of Adam is in Joshua chapter 3, verse 16. And listen to the, listen to the context. It says, the waters which were flowing down from above stood and rose up in one heap. It's talking about the crossing of the Jordan a great distance away at Adam, the city that is besides uh, Zarathon, and those which were flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, so the people crossed opposite of Jericho. That's it, Joshua chapter 3, verse 16. So um, I don't want to say this is like not an important detail, but this is just a geographical detail of the crossing of the children of Israel when they crossed through the Jordan, the, the, the River Jordan. This is not, this is not uh, uh, describing some great treacherous covenantal act of you know, transgression of, of breaking the covenant. <laughs> it's just not, you know? Anyone? Yeah? So uh, in Part B of 7, it says there 
they have dealt treacherously against me. And then the next verse, he talks about another location, another city. Hmm. So would that, would that give more support that it is about a location rather than about a person? In 6-7? Yes. Oh, no. Um. So I'm looking in the context for him having God having described another location that would be the reference to there, but if Adam is a city, saying there, seeing it there with it. Yeah, I have to look at that a little bit more, uh, but Maybe verse 8 clarifies that. He says, Gilead is a city of wrongdoers, tracked with bloody footprints, and raiders wait for a man. So um, he doesn't elaborate on the place Adam, or Adam, you know what I mean? He he goes on to talk about Gilead. And let's see here. Doesn't it, um, especially like verse 6, go with the previous verses where he's talking about Ephraim and Judah? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. It's it's talking about Ephraim and Judah, which is more, um, you know, talking about uh, parts of the kingdom. You know what I mean? And so maybe what he's thinking mainly of is what took place at Gilead. You know, so. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, uh, so let's see here. My footnote, verse 7, it says, or men. So those are the three options. It's either describing the, the, the geographical location, the city of Adam or Adam, or it's saying like man, because the word Adam just means man, right? So it says like men, they transgress the covenant. So Or at Adam, they transgress the covenant. Well, we have no record of them transgressing a covenant at Adam, number one. Number two, what does it mean that like men... They transgress the covenant. I mean, what else are they? They're not monkeys. You know what I mean? They're not, they're not dogs or something. I mean, they're, they're people. So that's almost like anticlimactic. You know, what would that be? So without looking at the Hebrew here, uh, Chris, I have to get back to you on that. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to level a scholar on you right now for... Bring that up. This is uh, Thomas McComiskey. If you don't have Thomas McComiskey's uh, Minor Prophets, you need to get that. It's fantastic. Anyway, he says this. If we understand Adam to refer to the first man, the application of the analogy to the whole nation becomes clear. As Adam violated covenant strictures imposed on him, so the people of Hosea's day had violated the covenant uh, that was made with them at Sinai. Uh, the strictures placed on Adam, on the man Adam, fall into the category of the covenant even though the term covenant does not appear in the context that describes the nature of Adam's probation. The basic concept of, of covenant is that of a relationship that involves obligation. Covenants were Im- implemented in various ways and mutually of agreement was not always necessary to them. A mutuality of agreement was not always necessary. The concept of relationship and obligation uh, were, so in other words, you know, the idea that they were in a relationship and there were certain obligations, but not necessarily that they had mutual agreements. So it was unilateral, not bilateral. Both are present in the account of Genesis. The people of Hosea's day were like Adam in that they violated a covenant as he did. The perfect tenses construed the covenant violation 
of which the people were guilty of as an established fact. So that was a Thomas McComiskey on uh, Minor Prophets. Fantastic. See me later if you want to know uh, more about that. But um, that's Hosea. And what else? Do we have time for one more? Uh, How about just the Old Covenant? Because I had her write down the Old Covenant. When we're thinking about the covenant of works, uh, again, uh, because, you know, we go from... We go from the covenant of redemption, right, uh, to the covenant of works, to the old covenant, right? We kind of have this, you know, reflection going on. Uh, I don't have a problem with the word reflection. Uh, Joseph Urban was like, what do you mean by reflection? I'm just saying that... (laughs) (laughs) He said... Is he said he said that uh, he doesn't really have a problem with. I sent him like a statement, I, something I wrote, and he said, "I don't want to have a problem with that." But what do you mean by reflection? You know, and so I thought, well, reflection. I'm just saying that there's just some sort of analogy, right? There's an analogous relationship going on here, and so I would say the same with the old covenant. There's an analogous relationship going on between the old covenant and the covenant of works. Let me read you some scriptures. Leviticus 18, verse 5. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 11. I gave them my statutes and informed them of my ordinances by which if a man observes them, he will live. Matthew 19, verse 17. Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter life, keep the commandments, what Jesus said. Luke 10, 28. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Speaking again about the commandments. So it seems as if... um, the Old Covenant, like the Covenant of Works, is promising life. Now, here's a question for you. What kind of life was the Old Covenant promising? The Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. So like Leviticus, when it says, do this and live, what life is he talking about? So if, what's that? Natural life, so they would just perpetuate natural life forever? Eternal life, that's a position. So in other words, an Israelite could potentially keep God's law perfectly and somehow inherit eternal life. No. I would say we need to interpret it covenantally in the sense that uh, just as God says, do not do these things and die, do these things and live is the opposite in the sense that you will have the life, life into the covenant in that sense. Mm. Meaning he won't kill in that way you will have life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot of evidence to suggest that what what um you know what the law was promising there with life is mainly national life. Uh some would call it national election, uh that they would continue to be God's chosen people in God's land. Meredith Klein exp- explains The commandments about to be given were the divinely dictated law for the theocratic kingdom as it was soon to be erected in the new paradise, land of milk and honey. Observe to do it that it may be well with thee, 
as the Lord God of thy fathers has promised thee. And there he's referencing, uh, let's see here. What's he referencing there? I, I can look that up in a second. I think it's in Deuteronomy. Israel's continued enjoyment of a habitation in God's land, like Adam's continued enjoyment of the original paradise, depended on continued fidelity to the Lord. Certain important distinctions are necessary, though. He says, flawless obedience. Now listen to this carefully. Flawless obedience was not the condition of Adam's uh, continuance in the garden. It was the condition, excuse me, it was the condition of Adam's obedience in the garden. But Israel's tenure in Canaan was contingent on the maintenance of a measure of religious loyalty, which needed not to be comprehensive of all Israel, nor to be perfect even in those who were the true Israel. What's he saying? What he's saying is this, that there was, that these, that this covenant, what was demanded of them, was not the second one Israelite has one sinful thought, boom, it's all over. That's it. Get out, everybody. Get out. He throws everybody out of the land. How long would it have taken God to do that? Right? Just like that. <laughs> you cross the land, boom, you're gone. <laughs> you know what I mean? So obviously what Meredith Klein is saying, a lot of people else are saying, is that there had to be some sort of measure of religious loyalty not a comprehensive, or I would say an exhaustive, uh, uh, perfect obedience to the law in that sense, in mind, word, and deed, right? But, but, but there had to be a measure of fidelity in the nation to retain their national election in the land. And of course, uh, this was going to be by works, not by grace. This, so that's why, you know, when, when covenant theologians say that Israel was just another administration of the covenant of grace, I do believe they err in doing that. Because had it been by grace on a national level... See, what's going on here, guys, in, in, in all covenant administrations, you have two levels. And on level number one, you are dealing with the typical reality... What do I mean by that? Somebody say it. Typical reality. Yeah, it's a shadow, right? It's a shadow of what is to come. Um, It is temporal. That's on this level, right? Dealing with Israel's national fidelity. But there is level number two, where it is not typical, it is real. It is the reality, right? Uh, it is spiritual. It is eternal, imperishable. Exactly. That's what's going on. And every covenant administration, this is what's being promised. So, to Abraham, you have a you have a uh, uh, you have a, a level one and a level two. Uh, you have a you have a temporal level and then you have an eternal level. You have a physical level and then you have a spiritual level. That's the way that it works. You and I do not belong to level one of the Abrahamic covenant. You know what, what we do belong to? Level two. Galatians chapter three, verse seven. We are descendants of Abraham. Is that belonging to level one? No way. I'm not Jewish. Oy vey. I'm not Jewish. Any questions about that? You've got 90 seconds. 
Okay, so, Lord willing, next week, um, we will, we will break ground on the covenant of grace. Um, was that slow enough or too slow? What do you think? I won't ask Brian because I already know his answer. You know? <laughs> One more week in the covenant of works, huh? No, I could. I mean, I didn't even get... Okay, here, here's a question for you guys. I'll let you guys answer my notes that I would have done for next week. How is, practically speaking, how is the covenant of works important? Why? In what way is the covenant of works important to you, to me, now? Okay, anyone? Anyone? Hmm. Mm, okay. Anyone else? That's the big one I had, right? Is the cover of works reminds us that we could never, if Adam in a in a in a in a paradisical state could not keep a works covenant, we would never. You know what I mean? That's right. Also, it magnifies the necessity of positive righteousness, right? What else does it demand? What, what, what else is needed now that we can't keep any of this? Grace. And so what does that tell us about grace? What it, how do we define grace? God's unmerited favor. Is that what the covenant of works teaches us? Anything more than that? Yeah, not only that, not only did Jesus, right, well, and he's not wrong, it's, or they're not wrong, you know, unmerited favor, correct, partially. But there's, no, even then, there's something that goes before unmerited favor, right? In a sense, it's, okay, unmerited favor that answers our demerit, okay? It's not just that we need unmerited favor, Right? Uh, that we can't earn it. Forget not earning it. That would, if you think about it philosophically, logically, what that's stating is almost like a that we're in some sort of like neutral position, right? That we're in some sort of neutral standing, and the the simple proposition is we can't earn it. That's not reality. The reality is is we have demerit. We're fully in the red. Yeah, that's right. We're in debt. We're dead in trespasses and sins, right? Like David said, if you, Lord, if you were to count iniquity, who could stand? We're all in the pit. We're all in the red. We're condemned. Remember Romans 5? Condemnation in Adam. You see? And so grace overcomes our condemnation and our demerit. That is what the covenant of grace is really all about. Right? So, amen. Okay, let's go.